0: IndieCast is presented by Uprox's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the 10th anniversary of Japan Droid's Celebration Rock. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, the host that
1: heaven built, Ian Cohen. <laughs> Ian, how are you? Yeah, the, the streets need to know who's the Brian King and who's the David Prowse of IndieCast. Oh, man, like, I'm, that's I'm, I'm, hard I'm, to ass- say. I'm assuming that like the average IndieCast listener knows that those two people I just mentioned are the two guys in Japan Droids. Uh, can, can we- I would think so. Okay, cool. I mean, I...
0: I feel like uh, our show has been building to this episode, yeah. <laughs> because I think it's fair to say that this album is the foundation of our relationship. <laughs> uh, I don't feel like that's a stretch. No. Uh, so it'll be fun to get into uh, talking about this record. But before we get to that, we should mention that there's a new Wilco record out today. It's called Cruel Country, and uh yeah. I wrote a review of it. It ran on Thursday on Up Rocks. It ran yesterday, but you can still read it today. You can read it whenever you want. Um, in that review, I said that this. Uh, well, I called it a great album in my review, and I said that this is my favorite Wilco record in more than a decade. Mm. I really like it a lot. I I'm curious, like, what have you listened to this record at all? Like, are, are you into
1: it? Yeah, I listened to this record, and you know, I love when you posit it as my favorite Wilco album in, ten, in a decade or, um, you know, 15 years or whatever. Because I'm assuming this, this time period stretches back to Sky Blue Sky, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was trying to figure out if I like it more than The Whole Love. That came out in 2011, and I think that right. was the best record of the 2010s for Wilco. So... It's close to that one. I think I might like it a little bit more than that one, but I'd have to listen to the whole love again. I haven't played that in a while. But it's like, yeah, I like it more than like the last three. Even though I like the last three, this one I like the most. The thing I like about it is that it is Wilco recording essentially live in the studio. There's like some overdubs, but it's basically just them in a room. And the last bunch of Wilco records, it's interesting because you know Jeff Tweedy, he's been very prolific as a songwriter. Lately, you know, he's put out a lot of solo records. He had that group with his with his son yeah. called Tweedy, um, and at times it's felt like Wilco like almost like another side project uh-huh. for him, you know. And the Wilco records to me have sounded uh, like solo records huh. in a way, uh, and and this one sounds like a band record in the way that the whole love is or Sky Blue Sky. Mm. I think that's what I really responded to on this record you have like nels klein playing a lot of pedal steel guitar i didn't even know he could do that but he does it really well and a lot of like warm organ fills and you know it's a double record 21 songs which is perfect (laughs) because we have memorial day weekend time to digest this record um I mean, have you kept up with, like, late-period Wilco records? I know a lot of people have dropped off. Yeah,
1: apparently I reviewed Star Wars for Pitchfork, the Wilco album 2015. <laughs> now, like, I liked that record. Uh, I still do, but, it, you know, you, you get to our age and it's you, you forget more reviews than most people will ever write in their lifetime, but uh, I was actually... Uh, more like more excited for this record than i had been for wilco albums in a very long time for a number of reasons first of which is that like in two weeks i'm going back to virginia for my college reunion and i'm like this is putting me in a very alt country kind of mood i'm like uh. revisiting a lot of that sound from that era like trace of course strangers almanac which you know sadly holds up and um you know like i when i heard i don't know where i got this from maybe it was the fact that country is in the album title that wilco is maybe going back more to their uh early you know am slash being there kind of sound um so you know that and also a double album like i i don't care who it is if you're making a double album that makes me immediately more interested in what you're doing and Also, like, this is the first Wilco album that's come out uh, amongst the projects that you mentioned. He wrote that book, uh, How to Write One Song, um, which, you know, has been a very um, both inspiring and intimidating book because, you know, Jeff Tweedy gives you all these little songwriting hints. uh, And then he's like, yeah, I use this word ladder game to write Can't Stand It in an hour on an airplane. But, you know, I'm sure you'll come up with something great. Um, And, you know, I think it's kind of colored my view of this record because it seems off the cuff uh, in a way that aligns with what he talks about in the book about like not being so precious uh, about lyrics, you know, like Empty Condor is one, um, you know, another song where he he gets a little bit more into surreal sort of like first take kind of lyricism, which, um, yeah, I think this is an easy Memorial Day listen, but like much in the same way the book lifts the curtain, I sort of wish there was more of that old Wilco magic where I can't figure out like how where the fuck did he come up with this um it's good it reminds me of like and i know how this is gonna come across but it's similar to the beach house album that came out this year where it's like uh 80 some odd minutes of a band doing their late period thing and it's enjoyable but it doesn't really move the needle for me the way that uh their previous work had
0: yeah you know just to go back to the country thing i mean there are Country songs on this oh, record. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely like the twangiest record they've made in a while. Not every song yeah. is countryish, but I certainly, you know, the single that was released, "Falling Apart," that's one of the more countryish uh, sounding songs. So there are those elements to it. There's also like a jammyness to some of the songs. Like, there's, uh, I think my favorite song on the record. Uh, it's the song that. It sounds like uh, Ripple a little bit, the uh, Grateful Dead song, and then like with Dark Star in the middle. So it, it goes on for about I think seven or eight minutes. That song is called uh, Bird Without a Tail, Base of My Skull, which is a really cool song. Um, and I think the other meaning of country is that a lot of the lyrics are talking about America. Yes. at the moment, like the, the title track talks about that. Yeah, you know, I actually found myself really enjoying the lyrics on this record because I think uh you know some of the songs are are pretty dark like the last song the plains is like a really dark (laughs) song i think about like creeping fascism and people just accepting it because there's sort of like a blandness to the fascism it doesn't seem scary it's like a non-threatening fascism that it's like a slow release death capsule that seems very relatable to where the country is now but then you know there's songs like lifetime defined that are um you know philosophical and kind of funny and remind me of john prine in a lot of ways which was how tweedy wrote i think earlier in wilco's career like a song like passenger side yeah you know is it, he doesn't write as much in that vein these days but on this record he's he's going back to that a little bit uh or you know there's like another song on the record called hearts hard to find where i think the first line is something like i don't feel bad when some people die you know yeah. which is kind of like a funny thing just talking about how you know some people when they pass away they're just kind of awful and yeah you don't really feel bad about it and
1: is, and is that a bad thing not yeah. to feel
0: bad it's about it's,
1: it's it's jeff Tweedy's answer to death cab styrofoam plates that's what many critics are saying right now
0: <laughs> so i would just say you know this record um again i i like this record a lot i and i think it's hit me uh the hardest of anything they've done in you know about a decade or so so mm-hmm definitely check out this album this weekend i i give it a hearty thumbs up i feel like you're giving it like a sort of like a unenthusiastic
1: well, yeah, thumbs up i would say it's a thumbs up in that like i probably need to spend more time with it um and you know to have it like sink in because you're talking about like you know Oh, yeah, the last song, um, you know, that really hits home. Of, like, fuck, man, I don't know if I've even gotten to that song yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I—I. I, there are very, very few times where and I think this kind of comes into play with like the uh, Beach House album as well, where it's like, I don't really know when I have 80 consecutive minutes. Um, and I think that one of the things that the Big Thief album really has going for it is that really um, it, 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 it it plays out a lot better being broken up into tiny pieces in a way that I don't think the Beach House or Wilco albums quite benefits from yet. But it's
0: definitely true that um, this album probably has about 15 or 16 album tracks and like five or six B-sides that are on the album, um, which is true of most double albums, although I don't think that's true of the Big Thief album. I think yeah, that's, that's all pretty, pretty much, much all, uh, all pretty much hits. I wonder like if Jeff Tweedy heard an early copy of the Big Thief record and was like, I want to do my own double record. Because this album was made in early, uh, I think it was made in like the early part of this year. Oh. So, um, and, you know, they share a publicist. And I know Jeff Tweedy's a Big Thief fan. So he might have been slipped. A promo, maybe he was like, oh, I want to make a 20-song record or 20-some song record. Just a conspiracy theory, I have no idea if that's true. I'd like to think it's true. Let's just say it's true until Jeff Tweedy ha- has a press conference to angrily deny this theory. I know you're listening, Jeff. Hit us up. I feel like we should talk uh, quickly about the new Sky Ferreira song yeah. that dropped this week called Don't Forget. Let's talk about it. A song uh, that is apparently from her upcoming record masochism which um has uh, i would say that music critics have had a masochistic relationship with this
1: album oh. uh,
0: if you if one could say as i loosened my tie here I, I just came up with that too that was not planned that was not in her outline yeah. that was purely extemporaneous um because this album cycle i think has been going on for about four years now like wasn't her Interview in Pitchfork that kicked this off. I think that was 2018. Yeah, gosh. Might have been 19. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a very... Well, first off, we... As Aaron Lewis once said... It's been a while, yeah. uh,
1: but the, the greatest uh, Stain song of all time. Um, no, that, the greatest Stain song of all time is For You, but that's neither here nor there. Also, right. well, we got to get Riley Walker on here to yeah. settle this. Yeah, the interview, the interview for Pitchfork came out in 2019, which... Okay, it was
0: 19, yeah. so three years. She did an interview with uh, Vulture this week where she said, quote, that she's 100% confident that masochism will drop this year which probably means that she's like 50% confident. But um, are you,
1: have you heard this song yet? Uh, no, I, I've not. It dropped yesterday and, you know, like uh, in real life work interferes. Like, I mean, gosh, it, uh, it is so hard to keep up with stuff like this if like music writing isn't your – or being on the internet isn't a full-time job. It seems to me that like – you know, people are a little bit more muted. Like, I don't even know where people are at in the anticipation of this record. Is it like, can we just, like, get this off, get this album out and move on? Or do they still feel like it's going to top nighttime my time? I mean, what? Like, I don't know what the Sky Ferreira, like, uh, like uh, stock is at right now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like that record, when it came out... Yeah it was It was liked, but I feel like the reputation grew oh absolutely. in the years like where you, where she wasn't putting out music, and then did it peak at some point I don't know i I mean people this is like a recurring theme on our show. I'm always wondering what the young people think <laughs> because you know critics of a certain vintage we remember the, her, we remember you know that record. Uh-huh. Uh, Which is, you know, that's like nine years ago now. It's like 2013. Yeah,
1: 2013. And it is so, I think, just the aesthetic of its album cover and the sound of it. It is very, I mean, it's dated. I mean, it still sounds good now. But, like, when I hear it, I still very much hear 2013.
0: I mean, it's interesting because she was part of that class with Haim and Lorde in 1975 and, wow. you know, all, you know, who all put out their first records that year. Yes. we've talked about this before, 2013 being a really pivotal pivotal year for a certain kind churches, of like pop-friendly, yeah. yeah, churches, like a pop-friendly indie. Like that was, you know, ground zero for for that shift happening and all those artists emerged at that time. And... I mean, Sky is obviously, like, the least famous out of any of those. I mean, they're all, like, really successful. Oh, she's less famous than Lord Heim and the 1975. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's there's not yeah. a... That's not... I mean, that's not to say she's not famous, but she's, like, doesn't... I mean, they're playing large venues. I mean, they're all, like, pretty prominent still. Yeah. And she's been... um, She might have been more famous than them in 2013, but, like, not now. Yeah.
1: There's no way. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that... Yeah, she she occupies like a different sort of space. I would also I would use this. I would say in the past that you know maybe more of like a multimedia sort of fame, but now that Heim was in uh you know liquor liquorish pizza, you know we can't even say that anymore. So yeah, I think
0: she says she just hasn't been visible. You know yeah. she you know she's been and I don't know what the issue is. There's like allusions to like contracts in that vulture interview. I don't know or if it's just. Her being indecisive, I don't know what the issue is, but hopefully that record comes out. I am curious to hear it. I like the single. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it didn't blow me away, but I thought it sounded good. Um, So I want to hear that record. Hopefully we'll hear it, you know, this year or by 2029. Who knows? Yeah, or maybe she just
1: won't drop any album and like the reputation of, um, you know, or the reputation of Nighttime, My Time will continue to skyrocket. And I think we're going to kind of, T- touch on this phenomenon when we talk about Japan droids, about like what it might be like to just never follow up a kind of untoppable uh, so- album that just crystallizes an entire song, a sound. So.
0: But I mean, Droids did follow it up. Yes, though, you I, know, and yeah, people forgot that record by now. I yeah. don't know. Um, I want to talk quick about the uh, train wreck that happened in Houston with Bright Eyes. Uh, yeah. uh, there was a story, I believe it was last weekend, it was where Bright Eyes was playing a concert in Houston, and after two songs, Connor Oberst walks off stage. Yeah, and it, <laughs> I it wasn't. I I, I haven't heard. An explanation for that? Like if he if someone said something to him, skate shoes. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So so (laughs) another person tweeted about his skate shoes and it was it was relayed to him on stage and he was very upset about it. I don't know. uh, but apparently the band, at least for a little while, (laughs) continued to play without him and they did this like bright eyes karaoke. Where they were inviting people on stage to sing Bright Eyes songs, and they would back them up, which would be kind of awesome. Uh, no, it wouldn't. Like, uh, there's well, not to, not to watch it, but like oh. if you were one of the people that got to sing with Bright Eyes, the
1: <sighs> band. What if you got booed, man? Like, like what? Yeah. What, if, what if you're like one of the people who? I mean, and at this point, like no one knew they were going to get refunded or whatever. But those t- those tickets aren't cheap, and no. you know, uh, there's actually. There's something here in San Diego. I don't know if it exists in other cities called Death Cab for Karaoke, which is like a live band playing a selection. You know, they have like the songbook of like Taking Back Sunday and whatever type songs, and you get up and you sing karaoke. And um, yeah, I will never fucking go to that. Uh, it just sounds like the most awful shit imaginable. So, ima- well, do you
0: like karaoke at all? Yes. And you do like karaoke. I, you just fucking... don't like the you don't like the idea of like a live band because I mean that is a common thing in every city like where they have like a live band and you could sing in front of a band. I like and doing karaoke more than watching it. But of course, no one likes to watch karaoke. No one's like, oh, I'm gonna watch some karaoke tonight. You know, I'm not gonna sing myself. Yeah. But I'm just gonna watch. Well, I bought a ticket to see the karaoke. Yeah, uh, I don't think I, I. Maybe there's someone like that. I can't imagine yeah. just going to karaoke to watch it. But anyway, enough with the karaoke uh, tangent here. Um, I mean, Bright Eyes and Conor kind of Oberst specifically, he has a reputation for being a bit of a, like a volatile, yeah, live performer. I I remember I saw him. I think it was 08. It was the Casadega tour. I think it was like the beginning of the tour. 07, 08. Yeah. So it was 07 maybe. Um, And he took, apparently took like acid before the show and, uh, or maybe during the show. And like at the end, he, he had this, he had this like little mini orchestra behind him along with the band, like just like a string section and he was playing his guitar and he walked away from the mic and he just like walked right into the string section. Like he stormed his own string section and then walked off stage. And this was like at the end of the show. So we saw most of okay. the show. And then I guess afterward he was in the, in the street like walking up to cars <laughs> and, and freaking out and stuff. That was a weird show. That was a weird crowd. That was one of the weirdest audiences. Like very cultish. In the, I, and I think, I don't think it's that bad with him now. I don't know, maybe, maybe it is, but like this was like in the aughts. I feel like his following was a little scarier, <laughs> maybe, than it is now. Like, did you ever have an experience with him like that? No, I've like
1: not seen a lot of Bright Eyes live. It's really interesting that like a lot of acts from that era, like them, Death Cab, uh, Jimmy Eat World, these very formative acts. Uh, you know, bands that I loved and, like, first started to love in college, I've just not seen them live very often. And when I did see Bright Eyes, it's been at, like, festivals where it's been extremely professional. And I had tickets to um, a show that was supposed to happen. It was, like, it, like, one of the ones that got canceled because of COVID. Um, so, yeah, I've just not seen them a lot um when i did see him it was awesome because it had like kind of the bony there two drummers like whole string section thing going on Um, and i mean right now it's like sort of like the lemonhead story where because of his well-known struggles and erratic behavior it's like a little bit difficult to like think this is as funny as it objectively is to have like people like, you know, to to have like karaoke rather than shutting it down. Apparently they played a show in New Orleans the next night, which was awesome. But um I don't know. Yeah, I mean it seems like it's it seems
0: different than the Evan Nando thing yeah. because he was screwing up every show. Oh, whereas okay. yeah. I don't think Connor Orbers screws up every show. He just occasionally has a show where he goes off the rails a little bit. And I don't know. I mean, like the show I saw. I didn't necessarily think, oh, this is like substance abuse. I just feel like, oh, he did something kind of crazy. <laughs> I mean, I loved the show; it was great. Yeah. And like I said, he played most of the show, and the band sounded great. I like chaotic chaotic shows. Yeah, some you know sometimes that's like a fun thing. So you know, if if he hadn't taken acid and stormed his own string section, I I might not have remembered that concert. But like, I'll never forget it now. Yeah. Just for that. Yeah. Happening. Maybe
1: we need like a Connor Ober sky for like a bright eyes sky Ferreira tour. Like, you know, just, just really just combine those two unstable elements. It'd and- be great. Yeah. It could be great. Um, so should
0: we just skip porn for pyros? Like we're 21 minutes. Yeah, we could skip it. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to our mailbag segment here and thank you all again for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners and we always need more letters. So, if you want to hear your first name and city read on our <laughs> podcast, please send us an email at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, do you want to read our letter today,
1: Ian? So, uh, hi, Steve and Ian. Uh, your recent conversation about the soundtrack for Minions, The Rise of Gru, got me thinking about the broader state of music on
0: film. Oh, a provoking conversation about The Rise of Gru. That makes me feel
1: good. Yeah, This was provoking dialogue. Out in our <laughs> listenership. It feels like music directors have basically given up on using new or recently released music in movies. When I think of notable needle drops in recent years, they're mostly nostalgia-driven, such as The Guardians, the Guardians of the Galaxy, a of movie soundtracks. Songs from Disney musicals will still chart, but I think the most recent non-musical movie to have a big deal soundtrack was Drive in 2011. It bums me out because I used to really enjoy discovering new songs and artists via soundtracks, this rate I'm not optimistic I'll ever hear another train spotting or garden state equivalent in my lifetime. In your opinion is the killer soundtrack officially a thing of the past? Any recent good ones that I missed? Thanks, Ashley in Baltimore.
0: Ah, so I I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past about soundtracks and how I mean I think Ashley is right that there are it, it seems like there's fewer soundtracks now than there were say in the 80s and 90s when that was a big deal. Yeah. Although is there like a resurgence a little bit like there was that um you know the minion soundtrack that Jack Antonoff is doing um and the Elvis movie oh, that Austin yeah. is doing also uh, <laughs> has a soundtrack where i guess they're you know it's like modern day pop stars doing Elvis songs yeah what could go wrong which sounds like a terrible idea it sounds like, like, like an awesome idea. cat it's like Doja Cat is on there. Is she doing like "Love Me Tender" or something. I hope yeah. so, man.
1: I like a tasteful <laughs> elvit I mean, this is like a Baz Luhrmann movie, and so like you could just throw out the possibility that there's going to be any good taste involved, but. Man, like, uh, a t- like Tame
0: Paula's on there too on the Elvis soundtrack, and, he, and he's and Tame Impala's also on the Gru Rise of Gru
1: soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. It's like Kevin Parker, he's horny for soundtracks, apparently. Yeah, get that, get that <laughs> bag, Kevin Parker. I know you're fucking struggling out there, man. But uh any
0: any like high concept soundtrack, Tame Impala first in line. Yeah, get me in there. I wonder what he's do- is he doing like uh, Burning Love, you know, or uh, In the Ghetto. Maybe, <laughs>
1: maybe,
0: maybe Tame Impala's doing In the Ghetto, that'd be great. Uh, but I I was thinking the other day, actually, even before we got this, uh, email about the Batman forever soundtrack from 95, where there were like multiple hits on that soundtrack. Hold on. Uh, Is that the
1: one with like the U2 song or?
0: Yeah. Hold me, thrill me, kiss me. Yeah, that, that was a pretty um, good song. Smashing Pumpkins cover of You're You're All I've Got Tonight by the Cars oh, is yeah. on that album. And of course, like the big song is Kiss from a Rose by by Seal. Uh but it's so funny because you know the, the soundtracks that Ashley mentioned, you know, Garden State and uh what was the other one she mentioned? Uh Train Spot. A, a Holy shit.
1: This has Sunny Day Real Estate and Flaming Lips and Method Man. Damn. Uh, yeah, Batman Forever soundtrack is low-key. Like, pretty good album. RZA produced
0: it? Whoa. The thing about that album that's interesting to me is that, like, Batman Forever, just on its own, has no connection like to <laughs> a, to music culture. It's just, like, cramming, like, songs into a movie to sell
1: an album. I mean, there's no real reason for them to be there. Can we just stop for a second? It's like, I want to read this. I'm just so fucking blown away. It's There's Mazzy Star Followed by Offspring, followed by Nick Cave, followed by Method Man. Yeah,
0: that, Batman Forever, baby. It uh, that's that's a big record. I mean, I was also thinking uh, this is like in the same genre of like a comic book movie uh, uh-huh. that has like a soundtrack for some reason. Uh, and I want to make sure I get this this title right. Uh, 2002's music from and inspired by Spider Man and uh like i think the most famous song that was inspired by spider-man is uh chad kroger with uh the dude from josie Saliva. scott
1: put some josie respect scott. on his fucking name hero yes which is a banger that's a, good, that's a
0: that's a that's that's a good song that's like the best song chad kroger i think is in fuck no of. this is how you remind me well that's a good song i take hero over that okay, song fine. um I also ha- I, Rock Star is a guilty pleasure for me too. Oh yeah, because I think the lyrics are funny. <laughs> yeah, they sure are, intentionally and unintentionally. Um, and also, I uh, just as a sidebar on on Hero is that the Hunger Strike of the two thousands? <laughs> sure, <laughs> because you have two prominent male rock singers yeah. doing a duet. Uh-huh. You have you know, so it's like it's like ten years after Hunger Strike. Like that's the two thousands answer. To, to hunger strike yeah, except they're on a building and temple of the dog was on a beach so well you know grunge was a little more gritty and you know street level and uh, <laughs> on a this beach. was you know they were uh you know it was a little more g- glamorous i think in the 2000s um it's so funny too to think about like that song came out like after the strokes and white stripes yeah. like, we talk about like the return of like rock you know interpol yeah. all these bands but it's like now chad kroger still dropping bombs yeah it's
1: it's like <laughs> after nirvana if the, after like nevermind came out you would still see like you know aerosmith videos playing like 25 times a day on mtv oh yeah yeah it's like
0: nirvana killed hair metal like here you know, is alicia silverstone in uh crying yeah uh you know that was basically it back like, then you would see richard uh,
1: mark's videos like as well i i that we could go in an entire episode about like the falseness of the Nirvana. Uh, actually, I think we did do an I episode. Mean, it's kind of
0: true. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's kind of true yeah. in a cultural sense, but yeah. I mean, any broad statement you make, yeah. it can be broadly true, but then there's exceptions to it. But but anyway, like it seems like that era where you just have a soundtrack for a movie that like you wouldn't think needs a soundtrack, yeah. but it's such a big movie that you know you can sell it right. like the album. That seems mostly gone. I mean, you know, there was, I guess, the Black Panther yeah. soundtrack. That was a big deal. That seems like the exception to
1: the yeah. rule. The Lion King. I think the 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 live action Lion King had a big soundtrack as well. I think Beyonce was like very involved. Like I don't remember a lot of it, but I know it exists. So, you know, that I guess yeah. I guess it's got that going for it. But It's that like a memorable soundtrack though? Uh, I mean, the- I don't. Clearly, not at least not to me. I mean, Black Panther. I remember that because it's got King Dead, um, which you know inspired the uh, you know saying like "I freaked it," which I've used like a billion fucking times on Twitter. So, Black Panther soundtrack, a lot of cultural import. See, like my my theory on this
0: is that the the reason why there's not as many like big time soundtracks is related to the diminishment of music videos. Ah.
1: Uh. You
0: know, back in the day, you would see the video for "Kiss from a Rose" a billion times on MTV, and there were clips from Batman Forever in the video. Like, I, th- I think Seal is also like on the top of a building, yeah. singing. If I remember that video correctly, and then you'd see like Nicole Kidman and Val Kilmer, and I, that's the one where Jim Carrey is the Riddler and yeah. Tommy Lee Jones is uh, Two Face. Um, so it's like a trailer for the movie, basically playing over and over again while you're also hearing this song. And, you know, there's obviously music videos now, but, you know, they're not as significant as they were. I just wonder if movie studios are like, well, what's the point? I mean, we're creating these soundtracks as a commercial, but no one's really watching these commercials anymore. So maybe we should should just move on.
1: I think we need an entire Batman soundtrack uh, episode because I'm looking at, like, the 97 uh, like Batman and Robin, I mean, it's got Smashing Pumpkins, Bone Thugs at Harmony, R.E.M., Goo Goo Dolls, Soul Coughing, a 10-minute Underworld song. This is like IndieCast core, this entire movie franchise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the first two... Well, I, well yeah, I guess the first one, obviously, Bat Prince Dance, did that. Yeah. Bat- Batman Returns, I don't remember music being in that one. And then Joel Schumacher started making yeah. the movies, and that's like when they started
1: being like proper soundtracks yeah. uh batman returns because, like, is, prince... batman returns was danny elfman and there's like one song with Susie and the banshees on it <laughs> okay well i mean i like i mean i like that prince album yeah the,
0: the batman movie, party man and electric <laughs> chair yeah some good tunes on that record um all right well let's finally get into the meat of our episode we're talking about the 10th anniversary of Celebration Rock, the second album by Japan Droids. This album was released on May 29th, 2012, um, and it was a acclaimed record the year came out. I believe it came in fourth on the Village Voice, Paz and Jop list. Mm. Uh, you and I are big fans of this record. I used to have a podcast called <laughs> Celebration Rock that was the prequel to IndieCast, so obviously a big deal record yeah. for us. We we we, we want to talk about it in uh, honor the tenth anniversary. You have a piece running in Stereo Gum. Is that will that be up by the time this runs? I'm not or? sure.
1: I think this is like one of those albums that had like a digital release and then like an actual release. So. I mean, it's it's one of those albums where I'm thinking to myself, oh, what's left to say about celebration rock? And then, f- like, literally 4,200 words later, uh, something will drop on stereo gun. So it's coming. Oh so, yeah, you wrote you wrote a book about yeah. it. Yeah, and I actually I, I thought about writing about this album, but then I was like,
0: Ian's probably going to write an epic on this. So I'll 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 leave the lane open to you. I I I've, and this this was before you told me it was 4,200 words. <laughs> like when you told me that, I was not surprised. No that you wrote that many words you could probably listen to the album twice (laughs) in the time it will take you to read ian's uh what i'm sure is a very insightful (laughs) appreciation of the record you know it's funny i don't listen to this album all that much i haven't i hadn't heard it in a while right before last night i listened to it last night I it's like "I i gotta listen to this before i talk about it and I listened to it three times in a row. Uh, and I was like, oh, and I was drinking some beers, because you got to drink some beers when you listen to Celebration Rock. Yeah. It's only about 35 minutes. Right. So, you know, if you listen to it three times in a row, it's about two hours of music. So, you know, a little bit longer than listening to the new Wilco record once. Right. Uh, you can listen to this record twice. And still have seven minutes left over in comparison to the uh, Cruel Country, the new yeah, Loco You can record. also
1: listen to the new, the Joyce Manor album that's coming out. I think if I'm doing my math correctly, four times and still have at least like 20 minutes to go. Yeah, you can listen to it five times.
0: So, you know, I, again, I haven't read your piece yet, but does this
1: album hold up for you? Yeah, as far as like whether or not this album holds up, um... I don't listen to this album very often anymore, uh, but when I do listen to this album, I am put face to face with like, yeah, this is this this thing fucking rules. It holds up, and, and the thing about it is that what what I think has contributed to its perhaps like lowered um, cachet in the past uh, in the past ten years is that it hasn't really influenced.
0: So you you feel wait hold on a second you feel like it has a lower cachet? Oh yeah, yeah?
1: absolutely. People like. The fa- I think people would be surprised that we're like doing an entire, you know, even though it's you and I that people are do what we're doing an entire episode about the tenth anniversary of Celebration Rock as opposed to a new Wilco album. See, I don't think people would be surprised that we're doing
0: it. I think they would expect us to do it. I I will I will say that, and we're gonna. I, I think this is gonna be one thing we talk about. It. maybe we can just talk about it now. That you know I mentioned earlier that this was number four on the past yeah. job list and this was in 2012 behind
1: Fiona Apple Kendrick Lamar and Frank Ocean that's it <laughs> yeah which is a pretty incredible you know company to be in
0: and i think it is true that in a way you know we we were talking about this earlier earlier in the episode that you know we talked about 2013 being a real transitional year in terms of critical appreciation for a certain kind of indie music right. that was you know sort of pop facing right you know looking towards the 80s uh really in a way kind of rejecting the traditional indie rock canon and um it does seem like if a record like Celebration Rock dropped in 2022 that it would not be number four on the list. that like you and I would like it a lot of other people maybe of our ilk would like it but like the by and large like the critical establishment would maybe roll their eyes at a record like this because it it really is a record that pledges unironic fealty to rock and roll and rock history mm. and like and even like rock clichés like looking at rock clichés uh and taking them at face value and and in my mind proving that rock clichés when done in the right spirit still work like can be really effective like when i was listening to this record you know i In my mind, I was thinking, like, okay, it reminds me a little bit of Springsteen, a little bit of Replacements. I was getting, like, a Siamese Dream vibe from the record as well, in terms of the sound of the guitar and the drums. But it was, like, Siamese Dream performed by two guys that are nowhere near as technically gifted as Smashing Pumpkins. But, like, maybe they love that record, and, like, they love that record, and records like that, just these anthemic, you know, larger-than-life, rock records and it's like we're going to will ourselves to making a record that is like those records. It's like it's like we we may not have the money or the technical aptitude to do it but just because of our love we're going to make our version of it. And that's what I was getting when I was listening to the record last night and it just reconnected with why I liked it when it came out 10 years ago. But you really do have to love like a certain kind of rock music for this album to connect. If you don't, I could see it just being, you know, I get sort of like a
1: cornball exercise. It really rides that line. Yeah, I think with, if you're not like super, if you don't have any buy in to that kind of music, you might see it as like more similar to like Andrew W.K. or The Darkness than you know, Bruce Springsteen or replacements or quote-unquote real rock. And, you know, you, you get to, like, why this album really resonates in a way that those two, like, don't. Because it this album is really... like I, There's a quote that uh, Brian King gave to Pitchfork in 2010 about people who are born with that special thing and people who uh, love people with that special thing and will go to any lengths to get close to people with that special thing. And that's really what uh i think resonates about this album it's like it's not like you're gonna listen to celebration rock and think oh i'm gonna start a band i could do this or um you know it's not like you're hearing a genius at work not even like the like the robert pollard or uh paul westerberg type you know uh, self-deprecating uh genius like a guy who can't get out of his own way but with like dropped two albums in a weekend in the closet if he was like a janitor or something like that. It's really just about like what it feels like to be, to bear witness to the greatness of rock music. And I think that's what ultimately, that's a big part of like what's hurt this album in the time since in that I think it's one of the last rock records where the people who made it. And I say this with all love kind of don't matter like, Japan droids don't have... Like, they have a Twitter account, but it doesn't follow anybody. They don't really do a lot of press. Um, you can't really project a hell of a lot onto them. Um, you know, even to the extent that, like, you can on, like, a whole Steady record or a Pup record or... Um, you know, like, they, they made this album and, like, you don't have to care at all about the people who made it or think that anything that they're singing about actually happened to them.
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. there's not like a cult of personality really with Japan droids necessarily. Although, in a way, they are more interesting because they are mysterious. I mean, there's not a lot known about them. I ended up, when I did the show Celebration Rock, I interviewed them on their tour bus right when their tour was starting for Near near the Wild Heart of Life, which was the record after uh, Celebration Rock. And, yeah, they just seemed like two dudes. I mean, they were friendly to me. I, I It was nice talking with them. They were on a big tour bus, which was kind of weird to see them in that context. But, yeah, I'm going to disagree with one thing you said, though, a minute ago, where I think this is a record that a lot of people heard it and thought, I can do this. Huh. I think it is a record that isn't really – there isn't, like, a high barrier of entry, seemingly, when you hear this record because, um, you know, it is, like, a pretty simple album. You know, it's not – if you break it down into in technical terms, it doesn't seem like they're doing a whole lot. Uh, But I will say, because there's been a lot of bands in the past 10 years that make what you could call celebration
1: rock music. Like lowercase celebration rock, like lowercase C, lowercase R.
0: Lots of like, whoa, O's in the chorus. And it's like, you know, very exultant, you know, and and it's like party music, people singing about beer and, (laughs) and all that kind of thing. And, I like some of those bands. I don't like some of those bands. I don't think any of them have made a record that I like as much as Celebration Rock. And I realized recently like why I think that is. Like I, I was actually interviewed on a podcast. I don't know if this has gone up yet, but the, I think Polyvinyl is doing a podcast about Celebration Rock. Oh, and I was I was interviewed for that. And the I was post- not. You were not. I don't know. They I don't don't talk no, to me. Don't, man. They'll
1: use my name on their fucking T-shirt, but. Uh... Well, you got the t-shirt, I got the
0: podcast. Right. That's how we divide the kingdom here. But um, the host kept asking me about the lyrics and asking me to comment on the lyrics. And I realized that I don't care about the lyrics on this album. Oh. But it's that—that that it's not like a literal experience on this record. This is all about sensation. This is a record that you put on... Because of how it sounds and how it makes you feel. Like, it's not a record that you deconstruct. I think if you actually break this record down that way, it falls apart and it doesn't work as well.
1: Yeah, what I'm thinking is that, like, the lyrics, like, do get, like, um, I don't know, undermined because of, like, the fact that it's, like, a big rock record. But when you actually, like, when I look at the lyrics, like, the substance of them, I think it's, like, quite profound. Like, for example... Like the house that heaven built, like you're not mine, you're not mine to die for anymore. So I must live. Uh, continuous thunder. When they talk about how, um, you know, like if I had the answers and you had the body that you wanted, would we love with a legendary fire? I mean, they're very quotable, not so much, not just in a high school uh, yearbook sort of way, but in terms of like getting to what the spirit of this album is, which is um what separates it from bands like pup or you know beach Lang or pew 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 however you want to pronounce it which is that this album is like not so much about like drinking beers and like you know having like a mind-numbing job and um you know like just wondering if your girlfriend's still going to be there in the morning it's more about like this kind of like spiritual quest which owes more to to you like you too than anything that I would associate with like indie rock or punk rock or metal. It's like it it's disguises. It's like this spiritual journey and this desire to like achieve more than you have in life rather than what I think celebration rock is all about, you know, the lowercase one, which is like, yeah, I'm a loser, but that's cool. Like, let's drink some beers. Let's just kind of have some good times and get on with uh, our lives. And I think that's like why this album has resonated more so than, um, you know other albums of its ilk so as far as like you know like you've talked about like how last night in order to get to the mood get into like the vibe get into the mood to like really re-listen to celebration rock like you have to have like some beers and get into it that way like i don't know if like my experience with this record is fraudulent at all because like i've never once drank a single beer to this album you know i definitely have to um post nothing but you know the, the 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 ones like. Do you have like any stories about like you know actually drinking a beer to Celebration Rock and like you know when it came out in two thousand twelve, where you really felt like yes, I am living out my truth to Celebration Rock as it like intended.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean I did it last night when I revisited <laughs> the album, you know, and I I think it's just maybe something I did out of habit uh, because it was fun. But yeah, it's weird to me that you've never had
1: a beer to this <laughs> album. I feel like it really enhances the experience. Yeah, I mean the one thing that uh, really, um, I think, a, a, it's a, it's kind of tough to you know talk about like drinking with this record because it's like also like a really good record to listen to in your car. So you know, like celebration or indiecast does not condone drinking or driving. But um, one music writer who I knew like came to Los Angeles when I was living there in 2012. Um, he was a fan of the record, but he you know, had no driver's license you know, live in New York city, never needed to have it. And, you know, we met up, uh, went to a bar, he had a drink. I did not, um, just to make that point clear. So I don't contradict myself. Um, but you know, he, he asked me at the end cause he knew I was like a big celebration rock fan. Like, um, dude, like, can you give me a rock? Like actually let's just drive around LA listening to the album in your car. And, you know, mind you, this was like a Mazda two. So it's not like being a Camaro going down Sunset, you know, going down Sunset Strip. Uh, so I think for like, you know, a solid 30 minutes, we just drove around and he listening to Celebration Rock, like he felt like this was what was needed in order to experience the album as intended. And I also wonder if like that also determines like how, um, you know, the New York based music uh, community experiences rock records if they don't have cars. Um, you know, that, that was it to me, but, um, you know, I think that it's kind of hard to talk about like Japan droids and like what the experience is like without, uh, talking about the live, uh, the live show. Like what was your experience like seeing the live like Japan droids live? Cause this is like where you really think it's going to like hit home. Like you're amongst other Japan droids fans from across the city, watching them do their thing. What's that experience been like for you?
0: Well, I, I saw them on the Celebration Rock Tour, it was like the first day of summer, like literally the first day of summer, like June 21st, I think, uh, in Chicago. So it it was all lined up for like, oh, this is like a record I love. It's the beginning of summer. It just seemed like, oh, this is going to go great. And that was probably like the worst show I've seen (laughs) them play. And it wasn't like it was a train wreck or anything. It was just uh, that... I remember like Brian had to keep tuning his guitar. Like it seemed like he tuned his guitar for like three hours total during that show, like after every song. I think he only had like one guitar on that tour and it just wasn't working that well. Uh, so it was just awkward. I mean, they have a reputation, I think, as a shaky live act, but I've seen good shows by them. I, the first time I saw them was at South by Southwest, and that was a good show. They were playing like on a stage behind an art gallery. I think, and like rural Alberta Advantage was on the tour. That's like a, like, remember some guys uh, type band. Um, And then I saw them, you know, on the, near the wild heart, near the, near the wild heart of life tour in like 2017. And I thought that was a good show too, but I don't know, like, have you had good experiences seeing them? Um,
1: I think in the same way that like. You don't need to care about Japan Droids like the people in it to love this record. I don't think it, it's almost like the two guys on stage playing the music kind of doesn't matter with the live show. Like I've had so much fun at Japan Droids shows, like people just like actually hugging each other and so forth. And um, yeah, it, it's not a gr- they're not a great live act because on record, like the woes and the yes, they sound like 500 people. And here it sounds like two people, like it sounds like two people who are just like gassed because they've been doing this for like five straight weeks on the road. Also, you know, Japan droids albums are 35 minutes, and the shows are like an hour and you realize like, oh, yeah, it makes sense, like why their albums are no more than 35 minutes. And um, I think this was like, uh ironically confirmed by the last thing they released which was live or it was called massey fucking hall it's a live album they recorded in 2017 for the near to the wild heart of life tour and uh it's like especially like if you're not it's just a live recording and it's like he can't hit the notes on the house that heaven built like that's kind of a famous story it's like it's out of his range he can't really hit the notes of any of the songs and Um, but at the same time, it's like more proficient, uh, more professional. And when I went and saw them in near to the near, near to the heart of wildlife tour in 2018, it was at, um, the Masonic lodge at Hollywood forever cemetery. Um, which, you know, kind of, it sounds cooler in theory. And at that show, they played like two, what I suppose were new songs. I had heard they were trying to become less perfectionistic, less, uh, you know, less precious about the songs they release. And it's like, yeah, I don't know if I need a new Japan Droids record. I think that was like a real kind of, yeah, if they don't have anything new to say, I'm okay with that. And um, I think that was sort of the case, the way people felt about uh, Near to the Heart, Wild Heart of Life in general. I mean... Yeah,
0: it's an interesting thing with that second... with with the record that came after Near to the Wild Heart of Life. I actually liked that record. I thought they did a pretty good job of like trying to expand the palette and move in a different direction while still retaining like what was lovable about celebration rock. But it does seem like that, like maybe that record is just an impossible act to follow. Like, I don't know if expanding the palette is actually a good idea Mm. with a band like this, (laughs) like if they had just achieved, because the sense I got from people when that, when that record dropped the follow-up to celebration rock is that people just wanted celebration rock again but i think if they had just stuck to that formula it would not have hit with the same kind of impact just because i think that was like a moment in time where they delivered something it was like the context of that record as much as the record itself like i know for me the thing I really loved about about Celebration Rock is that it just seemed you know, to be totally guileless about what rock music could be at a time where it seemed like a lot of people either thought rock music was dead or that all the cliches of the genre needed to be put to bed. And he was a band saying like, no, this, there still can be power in this and we'll show you that there can still be power. And that's the magic of that. But then it's like, well... How do you do that again, you know, once you've already done it? And and maybe that's, like, the larger story of this band, you know. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for a band to have one great record. And Post Nothing is a great record, mm-hmm. too. But, you know, to kind of achieve, like, the perfect example of what you do on an album and then maybe be like, okay, that's it. You know, I, I mean, there hasn't been a new record by them in, you know, what, five years?
1: No, in 2000, who knows if there will be in 2018. This is part of like my deep dive and research for the piece is that I looked at their Twitter account and it's like, there's absolutely no way they post to their Twitter account. Um, It's like the most robotic uh, promo sentences imaginable. In 2018, they said, Hey, we're gonna, they're like late 2018. Hey, we're going to do one more tour before we hibernate and work on the next record. Um, haven't heard anything from them since. And they also, this is a key part of the story. They were supposed to do a 10 year, uh, anniversary show for, for Celebration Rock at Shaky Knees Festival in Atlanta earlier this month. And I didn't even know they canceled it in January, apparently not from their own Twitter account, but Shaky Knees. They said, um, you know, like, Hey, Japan droids have been like, they, they've been canceled. And, um, and unless like, Given how much it takes for them to make music, you could really naively believe that they're working on LP4. Or maybe they're just done. I think one of them lives in Mexico City now and another lives in Vancouver. Um, but you know, it's it I think that the reception of Near to the Wild Heart of Life brings up like a greater uh I think someone actually asked this in our mailbag one time about like whether it's better for a band to have like a you know six albums like a career arc or they just like nail it one time and then disappear or just like make a bunch of like whatever records because you couldn't top celebration rock by doing the same exact thing like if they released like the antics of celebration rock in 2014 i don't know if that would have worked well for them and they did everything possible to expand their sound in a way that like wasn't ridiculous with near to the wild heart of life but it had been five years, a lot of their fans probably aged out of uh music writing, and it came out at like the worst possible fucking time, which was like a week after trump's inauguration. Uh, yeah,
0: I remember there were reviews saying like you know this doesn't talk about Trump or like <laughs> this doesn't this doesn't speak to the times of Trump. I mean that was really the beginning of that being a major hobby horse with with cultural critics of all stripes that everything had to be interpreted through the lens of trump uh which became extremely tiresome although i guess like in the wake of his inauguration the wound was still fresh and people you know didn't want to hear songs about how you know living the rock life is really cool i mean it just maybe it just seemed trite to a lot of people at that point point. and it, again it just speaks to like how well-timed celebration rock was i mean it just came out at a really good slot I think for that record I think if it had come out even one year later mm. it might have not have hit the way it did you know in if it had come out in the pack of like Haim and the 1975 and Lord all these artists that really seem to be kind of speaking to the times in a way uh you know it, it might have fallen through the cracks you know just by coming out in that
1: year versus 2012 yeah I think maybe they're like ceiling, uh, if they had come out in 2013 would be like, I don't know, something closer to like what dog legs album received or, you know, like maybe like a, not even like the dream is over. Like, I mean, it, it, yeah, it just came out like the right time. And it's, I think this is just like a, so much of like what we talk about here is just about timing and about context. And, um, yeah, I'm like just really interested to see if anyone else is going to like dedicate so much time that's talking about this album's 10th anniversary or whether it's just going to be people who tweet about uh, how much they love the adrenaline night shift in between like their stories about the NBA finals. I think this album had a, like a per- profound impact on sports writers, but like not music writers.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, but if they don't talk about it, that's good for us. <laughs> it leaves the lane open. So I'm raising a toast. I don't have a drink in my yeah. hand. I'm going to raise a toast metaphorically. To Celebration Rock. Maybe we'll have a podcast still in 10 years. We could do the 20th anniversary. We'll see what happens. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner. Where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All
1: right. So, uh, in a big twist, I'm going to recommend an emo band from Philadelphia on Top Shelf Records. Uh, this band is called Sweet Pill. They released an album on Wednesday. Um, look, I don't know what, the, I don't know why they released an album on Wednesday, but you know what? It's out there. You can definitely listen to it e- uh, even before we published but I don't know how you'd hear us Uh, it's a band called Sweet Pill and uh, the album is called From Where the Heart Is Um, there is this kind of wave of bands including them and um, Pool Kids who just released another uh, a new song and announced their new album this week which does kind of like a mathy emo revival thing with lots of guitar tapping but the lead singer takes on kind of more of a paramour sort of uh, vibe and so you get like that you know 2005 6 fueled by ramen pop but like also 2010 top shelf records twinkle and they put it together in a way that's super interesting and super enjoyable it's it's a low stakes record uh but nonetheless i think it's indicative of um you know a a wave of bands that you'll probably see like them uh where there's that technical aspect but also kind of a sweetness in the melody so it's not just like people watching, tapping, and like uh, you know, moving into fifteen over nine time signatures. So sweet pill, good band. So
0: is Joe Satriani an emo artist
1: now? Uh, Pat Metheny has become like weirdly associated in uh, like with emo bands now. People would say like American football. I know I love your lifestyle. Like we're trying to do some Pat Metheny stuff. Uh, oh wow! Yeah. So any stuff that like seems like kind of nerdy. It's going to end up in there. so <laughs> uh,
0: Awesome. Well, I'm excited to check that out. If you drop Pat Metheny, I'm actually intrigued by that. So I'll get into that. Uh, I want to talk about a band from Chicago called Dead. It's spelled D-E-H-D. I got into this band a couple years ago. I think this is when a lot of people started getting into this band when they put out their 2020 record, Flower of Devotion. That was a pretty acclaimed record. I know it got the best new music from Pitchfork. Um, and I guess you could like broadly describe this band as like a post-punk band, although I think, uh, there's something more romantic about them. I feel like a lot of post-punk bands now are very pedantic and word heavy. And, you know, we've joked about this on this show, you know, talking about the human condition and very flat uh, you know, detached language. Uh, that doesn't really have any of that. To me, they sound like a cross between like the cure and Roy Orbison, you know, very kind of melodramatic, beautiful, uh, you know, almost like Gothic type type, uh, sounds, uh, lots of reverb, lots of trebly guitars, pretty short songs, about two and a half minutes, pretty melodic. I know they've also been likened to like surf rock because of the trebly guitar thing. Um, but their new album is out today. It's called Blue Skies, and it really follows the progression that they've had. I think this was true of Flower Devotion. It's definitely true of Blue Skies, where each record sounds more polished and just sounds bigger. The, sharp, the songwriting is sharper. It's just like a good progression. They're definitely moving, I think, more like in a pop direction, but it's still retaining, again, that sort of gothy, dreamy vibe of the old record. So definitely check this record out. It's called Blue Skies. The band's called dead that's d-e-h-d not like the grateful dead but this is like the ungrateful dead perhaps uh but anyway check that out check out both records they both sound really cool uh thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.